Today is Palm Sunday, and we remember the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem for that final time. The crowds seemed appropriate for the coming of a king. The streets were crowded, people were excited, there was this buzz. But when Jesus came through those city gates of Jerusalem for the last time, he came as one on a mission. He didn't come through to absorb the praise and adoration of people. Instead, he had one single-minded focus to finish what the Lord had sent him to do. He understood where no one else did the true significance of the cheers of Hosanna. People thought they were just cheering, saying, praise God. Wow, the great prophet, a great teacher is here. But that word Hosanna really in the Hebrew means Lord, save us. It's not what they intended, although they hoped he might be perhaps that liberator. But Jesus understood how truly those words stood. These people in the crowds desperately needed saving. Jesus alone understood truly the weight of his task as he drew close to Jerusalem. And whether they were his fans, his followers, or his foes, all of them alike needed rescue. Friends, today, may we likewise comprehend that our world is in dire need of rescue. One of our sisters mentioned in her prayer this morning, we live in a very, very dark, cruel world. Monday morning earlier this week, the sound of gunshots pierced the air just after 10 a.m. at Covenant Presbyterian, at a Covenant, uh, Covenant school, which was at a Presbyterian church. The shooter, Audrey Hale, was, uh, was emotionally and mentally unstable. A 28-year-old woman uh, who regarded herself as a man who was pent up with rage and frustration. She shot through two sets of doors to proceed inside the school where she would gun down six people, three of them students, just nine-year-olds. They were innocent children, three more which were adults. One of the daughters was the uh, child of a pastor, the, actually the pastor at that very church at that school. One of the adults was a custodian, thinking that he was just starting another work week. One of them was a substitute teacher that could have been in any number of schools to teach that day, but she was there. The last adult was the very head of the school. It was an unimaginable situation. It's happened in Nashville, right? This is the, uh, right there in the buckle of the Bible Belt, right? It's right there in the heart. It, in fact, our headquarters for the Southern Baptist Convention is in Nashville, right? If you went to the SEND conference with us a few years ago, Nashville. In the heart of evangelical Christianity, we see these people lose their lives. Mr. Hill, the custodian. Miss Peake, the substitute teacher. Miss Catherine, the head of the school. Folks, the truth is we live in a world where life can be snatched away in a moment, whether it's by malice, like in this shooting, whether it's by disaster. We've heard of people losing their lives in hurricanes and earthquakes. Maybe you know someone that passed away in a freak accident before. It could happen just because of physical ailment. We live in a world ravaged by health issues. 
I got a little taste of that this last two weeks. It's a tragic world where at a moment's time, grief can fall on our loved ones. They can fall into our lives and our households. So when we talk about a world in dire need of a savior, you all understand that is not a hypothetical world. That is this world. This is a broken, troubled world. And I invite you today to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 21, verses 1 to 17. As we read about the coming of Jesus Christ, I want us to view it from the lens that he is coming into a hurting, broken world to finish a task of rescue that we desperately need. People in this world desperately need. Before we begin, could I invite you all to join me in prayer for the families that are grieving for the lost? Let's go to the Lord together. Father, this morning as we gather, we are grateful for our lives. We are grateful for breath in our lungs. We are grateful that we live and have experienced peace up to this point. And Lord, we don't take it for granted. We realize how quickly that peace can be taken away. Father, we lift into your hands those who are grieving and suffering, the parents of those who had passed away from the shooting, the siblings who are in turmoil as they look into the sibling's room or a parent's room and see that they're there no longer. Lord, we pray for the shocked community, the students, the faculty, Lord, who are mourning. Father, we ask that your spirit would comfort them. We praise you that that was at a Christian school and that we have hope that these are people who have the hope of eternal life. But even still, we know that there will be mourning for a time. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you, the God of comfort, would come alongside them, that you would lift their heads, that you would show them that you are a God mighty enough to bring good out of tragedy and evil. We lift up the family of the shooter, even, Lord, her parents, her family, who are probably ashamed and hurting over what their child has done. We pray for the gospel. We pray for it to go forth. We pray that some might be saved even through this tragedy. And Lord, we ask that as a watching world is observing what will happen next, that the name of Jesus will be lifted high. And that's our prayer today in this room, that in our lives, in our eyes, Jesus would be lifted high today. Come and glorify yourself, O Spirit. Come and teach us from your word. We are here to listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Prior to his arrival in Jerusalem, Jesus briefed his disciples three times on his impending death. And he tells them for the third time in chapter 20, immediately before the passage we're about to read, that there's only condemnation and death awaiting him in Jerusalem. And he tells them he will be delivered over to the Jews to be condemned by them to death. And he goes on to tell them that he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles to be mocked and tortured and eventually crucified. On one hand, in the city, you have Jews waiting to condemn him. On the other hand, you have Gentiles waiting to kill him. Think about that for a moment. For Jesus headed to Jerusalem, approaching the triumphal entry, the only thing that awaits in the city for him is persecution. There's no third party. There's Jews and there's Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews. This is the backdrop to Jesus going in for the triumphal entry, as we call it. And you might say, well, he had his disciples to get us back. Well, his disciples in chapter 20 are squabbling over who's going to be the 
greatest in the kingdom, who's going to get the right and left hand seats, right? Even they are not really behind Jesus as he gets ready to suffer. And so you see behind this triumphal entry is this, really it's a troubled entry for Jesus as he's going in. He knew the city would reject, reject him, and he knew this is where he was going to meet his end in cold blood. And as we read Matthew 21, verses 1 to 17 here, I want you to pay attention to the intentionality of Jesus Christ and everything that he does from the moment he gets through those gates. Even before those gates, he has one thing in his mind. The world needs to know who he is. That's the one thing he wants communicated. Verse 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord, has, uh, the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Here in this passage, we see first the preparation of Jesus for his entry. We see the clearing of the temple when he arrives. And then we see the embracing of the praise of the children uh, that, uh, that where Jesus is happily taking on their worship. Jesus, all throughout these three sections of our text, stayed on the path to the cross. You see, each of these sections, it points to who he is. It's like a diagram. You all remember as children those uh, connect the dot pictures, right? And you have to draw a line between all the dots. And when you finish, it gives you a picture of something, an animal or a structure. Here in this passage, we see that every one of these events is not another random event that happens as Jesus goes along, but each one of them is a further witness to who he is, and each one of them gets him deeper in trouble with the authorities that will eventually uh, be the ones to arrest him. 
Jesus, had he deviated from each of these sections, each of these steps, he, he, he might have turned down the worship. He might have avoided scrutiny. He, he might have avoided the temple. He could have probably gone through this Passover without much trouble, but Jesus understood why he was there in that city at that time. Number one, I want us to consider the arrival of Jesus. Right, Jesus, this is our main point for today, stayed focused on fulfilling the Father's mission to save the lost. All throughout the triumphal entry and what follows, he is staying focused on, the, on fulfilling the Father's mission to save the lost. The first we see this in how he arrives. And Matthew reminded that Jesus comes from Bethphage and he enters through the Mount of Olives. It's uh, another association with the Messiah. Uh, Zechariah 14.4 talks about the Messiah standing on the Mount of Olives. And so Matthew sneaks that into there and remembers that's the direction that they came from. And Jesus makes preparations for his entry. After all, he is the king coming into uh, that holy city. And Jesus goes through the trouble of arranging a ride. You need to understand that Jesus does this for only one purpose. It was for our benefit that we would have clear understanding of who Jesus was. He could have, have you ever thought, just as easily gone into Jerusalem by foot. He could have gone incognito. He could have went with a group of a crowd of his disciples, and who would have been the wiser, right? He, he could have snuck in easily, but he made the effort to, get, to tell his disciples in verse 6 to go and grab a donkey, right? Um, the, Jesus instructs them to go and uh, find this donkey and bring them to him. And if anyone asks where they're going with them, just say that the Lord has use for them. They weren't even his own donkey, right? It's a rent-a-donkey here. <laughs> he, he borrows this donkey for this trip in. Typically, important royal figures, when they travel into a city or a destination, they want to travel in style and with protection. For example, in the royal family, the British royal family, when Prince William last year traveled to Boston, it costed the city and taxpayers $170,000. 100,000 of that dollars of that money went towards security and police. Why do you need to pay so much for security? Well, because if British royalty gets taken hostage, you well might be paying far more than a few million dollars, right? And so in order to protect yourself, you pay for the security. And then another 59,000 went towards staging and rent and flowers and lights because when royalty tends to arrive in this world, they want to flex, they want to demonstrate they are someone significant. This is part of the reason why Canada did not want Prince Harry and Meghan. They didn't want to pay their security bill for them to stay in the country. And this is not new. Throughout history, when kings and royalty or dignitaries arrived, they would come with an entourage. They would come with soldiers and troops. They would often come in a carriage or riding on a horse. Jesus had none of that, and he had no need for any of it. Because the point of Jesus coming on the donkey was not that he was some great ruler, some great king, but rather the opposite. He came as a humble king. He was coming as a servant. He was coming to fulfill Scripture. 
to be that suffering servant, to be that king who is humble and gentle and lowly. Jesus made these preparations to have a donkey, but it really wasn't much. A donkey in its colt, very likely he rode on the colt. That's a, uh, the, the, the smaller baby donkey or younger donkey. And then he had his disciples' cloak on it to uh, be a bit of a saddle for him. Let me make it clear here for us. Jesus did not care one bit what people thought of his, the image of his arrival, right? It is embarrassing of an arrival as you could get. It might be better to walk in than to be on a donkey. It's a very humble animal. It's like going to your car dealership and getting, uh, you know, I don't know, a Civic or a Corolla, right? <laughs> and then driving out to some lavish event. It'd be kind of embarrassing. But the whole point was to fulfill Zechariah 9.9, the arriving of a king, as it talks about here. You, daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He wanted them to see your king is here. He is the king. He is the Messiah. But he comes Gently, he comes as a servant. Folks, when we tell people about the gospel and the coming of Jesus Christ, the need to submit and surrender to him, let's not forget that first we are presenting Christ as the servant to them. Jesus served us before he asked for our submission and our allegiance. He came gently in a lowly manner. He came as one who was fully vulnerable, unprotected, without fanfare, right? To come to, to a people that would ultimately reject him. Jesus mentioned a chapter ago, he came to not to, not to, not to be served, but to serve. That's the image of Jesus arriving on that donkey. Sometimes, church, we forget that in our relation with Jesus Christ, it's not just us trying to do things for him. We got to remember that the basis and the foundation of our walk and our relation with Christ is that he served us humbly, amazingly, as the God of creation, as the, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He served us to the point of giving himself on a cross. Most royalty have security so that they don't get taken hostage and no one has to pay a ransom for them. And if they ever did get taken hostage, they would expect that a ransom would be paid on their behalf. When our Lord Jesus came to this world, he came into this city on his debut as the public coming king. He came as divine royalty to this earth but he wasn't worried about being taken captive. It's the reason he came. He came to be taken captive. He came to be the ransom. Forget about people having to pay ransom to get royalty back. Jesus came specifically to be the one, to be the ransom for us. It's an amazing thought. It's the first time in history that royalty stepped into a city and said, I'm going to be the ransom. Every other instance in history of royalty going into a city is them there to show their own glory, them trying to protect themselves, them following their own agenda. Jesus came on the Father's agenda to be the ransom for you and I. He stayed focused on the Father's mission, and all he prepared for his entry was that donkey and the colt 
I don't think he even talks about the disciples were not necessarily commanded to throw on their coats, but they did it out of deference to their Lord. Well, the people cry out, Hosanna. It's a word used to praise the Lord, uh, but its literal meaning is, of course, God save us. And indeed, Jesus wants them to know, that's what I'm here for. That's why I have arrived. I am that king, that humble king who has come to save you. And then comes in the text that important question, right? So people are shouting in verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the whole city is stirred because at that gate where he's coming in is this huge ruckus. And people are lining the streets and you got palm branches. What dignitary is this? What, what, uh, uh, what, what royalty is this? Who, who is coming into town? And so they're asking, who is this? That is the single most important question that a person in this life can ever ask. It was the question of the hour when Jesus arrived. And it is still the most important question today for every person breathing on this earth. Who is this? We're going to come back to that later today. But suffice to say, the people did not quite get it. They said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. If you're wondering, why does Jesus go through so much trouble to fulfill scripture, to put things in place? He wanted people to be able to look back. He wanted his disciples to be able to look back and know without a shadow of a doubt, he was that sent Messiah here to buy the freedom of his people. So first, we looked at the arrival of Jesus, and we see he stays laser-focused on his objective, coming on a donkey, no other frills attached in his arrival. Second, consider his confrontation with religious authorities. In our text today, it says in verse 12 that Jesus immediately goes to the temple courts. That's the next thing that happens. We understand from Mark chapter 11, 11 to 12, that there's an evening that passes before Jesus goes to the temple. But Matthew puts this next encounter right next to his arrival. He wants to show this urgency, the immediacy of Jesus going to work in the city. Now, I want you to consider for a moment, Jesus at this point is at peak popularity. In most of his ministry, he told people to kind of keep it under wraps, what he's doing and what he's about, right? And he tells them, my time has not yet come, right? And so he's not, he's not trying to publicize. Well, for the first time ever, Jesus, he, make, he, he is totally publicly revealed himself coming in and receiving this huge welcome. He's, he, he, people were so pumped and excited that he's arrived. They're, they're calling him these, even these messianic names, even though they don't realize how true it is. He's at peak popularity. And what does he do for his first assignment in the city of Jerusalem? Well, he goes and he starts an absolute ruckus. Right? He tells us that he goes into the temple courts in verse 12 and he drives out those who are buying and selling there. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And then he speaks, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. If Jesus wanted to ride the wave, he could have. Peak popularity, he probably could have gone in, he probably could have taught there with some authority, with lots of recognition, with the crowd backing him and supporting him. Do you know what he does? He goes in and does something so outrageous that people were probably shocked and stunned. What is going on? Can you imagine if someone came in here today and started flipping over the pews? That'd 
be kind of hard. I think they're bolted down. But if someone pushed over this table, right, and just started making a mess of this place, that's what he did. Birds flying everywhere, cages being shoved around, people's money scattered over the floor. What's going on? Jesus doesn't do this just out of outrage, although that's part of it. He is legitimately, righteously angry that these people would come in here and be vending in the temple and not just vending. It's one thing to sell to people who have nothing to bring from their pilgrimage to be able to purchase an animal and sacrifice it to the Lord. But Jewish sources tell us that there was a lot of corruption during that time and that they had learned to make profit during these uh, fest uh, festivals and feasts when people came from afar. It's hard to bring your animals. And so they would sell you the animals on site, but they would make it exorbitantly expensive. It's like that time that I went to SeaWorld with my family and they were charging $50 for a tiny whole pizza. $50! You've got to be kidding me. I could buy 10 Costco pizzas. Oh, sorry, five Costco pizzas and have like, I don't know how much more, right? Well, that's what they were doing. They were scalping. They were, they were price gouging the people. And they felt, why not? It's great for profit. It's that time of year. This is the best time of year for profit. Jesus is livid. You're taking people who want to come and worship and you're charging them an arm and a leg, right? And so he is indeed righteously angry. But you need to understand what, what Jesus did there goes beyond that. Let me, let me ask you, had Jesus been to Jerusalem before? Yes. Had he seen the temples before, taught in them? Yes. But why here and now does he do what he does? Because now is the time to reveal that he is the servant of God who is, as John says in his gospel, zealous for the Father. He is this one, as it talks about in Zechariah 14, 21, that, that is coming into the house of the Lord uh, and, and making it so that there's no longer any merchants or traders inside. He is this one, as Isaiah 56 predicts and anticipates, that will come into the house of God and turn it into a house of prayer. He is that one from Jeremiah 7, 11, who laments that the house of God has become a den of robbers. He is that one in Psalm 69, who is filled with zeal for the Lord. Jesus wants to make clear, first task when he gets into town, I am that Messiah. I am that one here to tear down that temple worship, to purify what has been corrupted. I am here to close the gap between people and God. Friends, do you know why we don't need to make that journey out there anymore? why we don't need to offer sacrifices anymore, why we don't need to have vendors and traders to sell us animals to spill blood. Hebrews 10, 12 reminds us that Jesus offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. We know as Christians that sacrifice was himself, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We understand that's what Jesus meant when he said he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came so that there would no longer need to be vendors in the temple. He came to give himself so that there's no reason to buy or sell. He came so that you and I, who now are the temple of God, that we could devote ourselves to prayer and not have to worry, how do I please God? What sacrifice can I bring before him? How can I make myself better before you, God? Folks, if you've worried about that and you're stressing out about that, can I remind you that is why Jesus went to the cross to make it 
so that you would never have to sacrifice, that you would not have to qualify yourself, you would not have to be good enough because he is good enough. By his merit, we can worship and focus purely on praising and worshiping God. Can you imagine how hard it would be to worship if you had to constantly worry how acceptable your life is before God? I don't know any of us could worship properly because all of us would be terrified and thinking, well, what about that thought? What about that, that deed? What about that word that I spoke? God has freed us to worship through Jesus Christ. He did that by pretty much sacking his reputation. Go from being at peak, you know, we were talking about social media. He's got all the followers and likes at peak, at the peak. And imagine going out on Twitter and absolutely blasting the rest of the popular people in this world, right? And suddenly people are like, whoa, what's going on? Do we want to get behind that? Jesus was not concerned about his popularity. He wanted people to know he was the servant of the Lord that had come to bring people to God, to deal with the corruption of the temple, to bring people to God. And as a result of his righteous response and faithfulness to scripture, Jesus had made a very powerful enemy. That wasn't, that wasn't out of his prediction. He knew what he was doing. He knew he was, who he was picking a fight with. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, we read that after this temple cleansing, it tells us that the chief priests and scribes sought to destroy him because they feared him. And they rightfully feared him because he was indeed there to get rid of the system that kept them at the top and kept them rich and kept them in control of people. And that's how it is when people are struggling to accept who Jesus Christ is. There's a new sheriff in town a new authority. Can we accept him? Will we be ready to follow him? So by the cleansing of the temple, you see the laser focus of Jesus Christ to make it clear that he is coming to fulfill the Father's will. Finally, I want us to consider his acceptance of praise and worship. In this last section here, after cleansing the temple, Jesus goes to the temple. Uh, he, he goes and starts uh, healing in verse 14, the blind and the lame as they come to the temple. By the way, those are people that are typically not welcome in the temple. These people with defects, normally they were not people that were allowed to be in the temple, right? And he healed them. And when the chief priests of the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, they rejoiced. No, they were furious, right? They were jealous. They were filled with envy. They were filled with fear. What do we do about this guy? Right? And he, they, they see the children shouting in the temple and it is piercing in their ears, Hosanna to the son of David. Son of David, they're attributing him to be the one, the Messiah. Won't they shut up about it? And then they go to Jesus and they complain, won't you say something about this? Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus straight up tells them, yeah. And don't you know, that's pretty much what he's saying is that's what they ought to be doing is essentially what he says here, right? He, salts, he cites here Psalm 8-2 as the children are calling forth praise to the, uh, uh, to the Lord. He says, it, it, it says here, he reads, from the lips of children and infant, infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. He says this as they are praising him. He says they're praising God. They're praising God. That's a, it's a, it's a pretty gutsy thing to say. Probably part of why they wanted to scream out blasphemy and kill him. This guy is taking all the praise that should be due to God. How dare he? 
They didn't understand that he was the only one in all of creation worthy of the worship and praise and adoration. But Jesus painted that target big as ever on his back. He could have just quieted them down, maybe, you know, toned it down a little bit. But here's no longer Jesus saying, my time has not yet come. Don't tell anyone about what I'm doing. He is in public in Jerusalem, in the temple, healing people, receiving praise. And he wants the world to know, yes, the son of David has arrived. And this put him on that hit list of his enemies. And he understood that the contempt, the murderous hatred of his enemies would soon be coming forth. You see, given the option, most of us try to avoid suffering, to avoid persecution, to avoid trouble. Of the six people shot dead on Monday in Nashville, do you think a single one of them would have shown up to school that day if you had told them that a shooter would be there? Surely every one of them would have stayed in their home, stayed safe. That's what all of us would have done, right? Understand that what you read here in the triumphal entry and the temple cleansing after is just the opposite. Jesus goes into the city and he paints a bright red target across there on his back. He essentially tells him, come and get me. I am making that proclamation. I am making that assertion that I am the son of God. Jesus waded willingly into the line of fire, if you want to put it that way, got in front of the bullets. He did it because you and I were going to get hit by those bullets. In some slang, they talk about catching strays in our culture, right? Well, we weren't catching strays. We were catching bullets rightfully aimed at us. You and I are sinful people. We are people that have fallen short of God's glory. We are people that don't deserve the, 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 the joy, the delight of heaven. But Jesus Christ came. He stood before us. He absorbed the penalty and the consequence of sin on our behalf. He, he clearly made himself known, knowing that that would get him condemned to the cross. Do you see it? Do you see it on the triumphant entry? It is triumphant in that he's receiving praise, but it is a troubled entry in that he is putting himself right into the trouble. Folks, you need to see how much Jesus loves us from this passage. Everything that he does points to who he is, and everything that he does is working to get him to that place where he finally is arrested on charges that ultimately bear no weight against him, yet he willingly goes to the cross. He is the Son of God. He is claiming to have equality with God, but he is also deserving of it. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Something we're going to commemorate this coming Friday at 7 p.m. here. Would you remember on this Palm Sunday, Jesus waded into the line of fire. He got right in front of us because he loves us. And he did that not just for you and I, but he did that for every person that is struggling with the burden of their sin, every person that is suffering under the agony of a broken world, every person lost in this life, wondering what's it all for and where am I headed? Jesus went to the cross so that they would have life and that they would have hope. Jesus stayed focused on fulfilling the Father's mission to rescue the lost. Friends, I don't know where you are this morning, but you need to remember Jesus has come for you 
and not only for you, but for your loved ones. We need to remember that Jesus stayed focused on that mission and he finished it. He said on the cross, it is finished. But did you know that he gave a follow-up mission that belongs to you and I? He gave us a follow-up mission to make known what he has done, who he is, and how he is now risen. And as Easter approaches, we who know the truth about our suffering Messiah, our suffering Lord, we've got to get that message out there. Jesus died for those around us. He died for our relatives. He died for our neighbors. He died for our enemies so that they would know him, that they would not remain under condemnation. On the cross, it was finished. But folks, who will bring that message forward to make the offer of forgiveness known? The church, you and I have been entrusted with that. Jesus came and paid it all so we don't have to live in fear of losing our lives. The reality is, the more we preach truth, the more likely that one day there will be enemies of this church. That someone could come in here one day and shoot it up. That's a, that's a very hard truth we need to start getting used to. It's absolutely true that, that in a moment our closest loved ones can be taken from us. I grappled over this this uh, last two weeks as my family was getting really, really sick, and I had to think, man, what would happen if one of them didn't make it? We talk about infants being very vulnerable when they're very young of illness, folks. There's a lot of grief and terror in this world, but it's the reason why the gospel matters. The gospel matters. Hence, those who were shot dead, though they're robbed physically of life on this earth, have not had their eternal lives shortened by even a second. Do you believe that? Do you believe that those who lost the joy of their loved ones, that their joy for eternity is undiminished because they will see their loved ones once again and they will worship God and remember his salvation day after day? Are you seeing the value of the gospel? That someone who is so helpless and filled with bitterness that they can do nothing else but want to make others miserable and take away what is precious to them, that even such a person could find forgiveness in absolution. That is the power of the gospel. Do you and I care about the Father's mission as our Lord did? Do we care too much perhaps about the things of this world, the fact that we want to keep people liking us, we want to keep people keep friendly with us, we are worried what they might think of us. I know that I struggle with that. I don't want my neighbors to feel like, oh, that guy's just a pastor. He just wants me to go to his church. I don't want people, Muslims and Hindus, to think that's, a, you know, that's just another Christian who's trying to convert me. I, sometimes I'm afraid that someone that doesn't share the same values may think, what a bigot. He's one of those evangelical Christians. I get it, guys. It's scary at times. The truth of the matter is Jesus stayed laser-focused on the mission because he understood the value of people. He understood the value of you and I. He understood the value of our neighbors, that these are precious people made in the image of God. And there are so many people in this world just like these crowds that we read about here. They're, they can get excited about this idea of Jesus. They like the idea of, of a, you know, a, a guy who forgives, a guy who teaches morality, he teaches ethics. There's a lot of fair 
weather fans, bandwagoners who say, yeah, it's Easter, it's Christmas. Let's just go and do the Christian thing. But folks, these people are desperately in need of a real relation with God. How will they hear about it unless someone invites them to come and remember what the resurrection is really about? It's not about bunny rabbits and eggs. It's not just about a very nice, fluffy God. It's about a God who is utterly, totally holy and has pardoned our sin through Jesus Christ on the cross and has risen him up to be Lord so that we would know him and walk with him in relationship. There's a lot of people that are just like the crowds that need to know the truth. They need a real relation with God. Would we go after them, church, as Easter approaches? There's a lot of people that are like the scribes and the Pharisees, and they dread the thought of Christianity being true. They dread the thought of there being really a God who sets the standards for their life. They dread the thought of having to let go of their dreams, the things that they want to do, and having to submit that before God. They dread the thought that God can dictate how their life should be lived. But Jesus died for his foes, and he prayed over his enemies, and he begged God to forgive them. Maybe there's someone in your life that you think, the minute I try to invite them to church, or the minute I try to talk about the resurrection or talk about Easter, they're probably going to roll their eyes, or they're probably going to push me away. Do you and I love them enough to still engage them? Do we have enough faith that God can change hearts, that we could still ask the question? Have you ever thought, what is the worst that could happen? Maybe they're uncomfortable around us for the next few months. What does that cost compared to what Jesus gave to purchase their freedom? Some of us are like the disciples and, you know, we're doing our best for the Lord You know, he's given us orders to go and get the donkeys and the colt, the donkey and the colt. He's told us what we ought to do. And we've got to respond in obedience, even though we may not totally understand why. I'm not sure the disciples fully got it when they went out to get those animals. But looking back on it, they understood just how crucial it is. Friend, if God has given you something to respond to in obedience this Easter, if he's challenged you about your view of the cross and how you should be living before God, it's time to respond in obedience. If he's put someone on your heart that you need to reach out to, someone to pray pray for, a, a relative to reconcile with, would you respond in obedience? The disciples didn't have a big task in the triumphal entry. Just get the colt and the donkey. Would you be willing to do that? Get someone ready to see the coming of the king Right? Get someone ready to see the king crucified. Get someone ready to see the, the king lifted high out of the grave. Dr. Catherine, head of the Covenant School where the shooting occurred, put on her website her commitment to education and to these students. She said to educate these 21st century children is really her passion. She wants them to be children who can make an impact in their culture and to think in accordance with the timeless truth of God, also known as the Bible. She goes on to say that we must be be about more than simply education. We want the children to become uh, those who God intends them to be, to really know God, so that they might, and I quote, act with the character that comes from the authentic, from an authentic faith, in Jesus. 
She gave her life not just to education. She gave it to making sure these children would grow to be who they ought to be in Christ, that they would have a genuine relation. And let me tell you something. When those three nine-year-olds were shot dead, there was no greater endeavor in the lives of those three nine-year-olds than someone pointing them to Christ. You're not a school teacher. I don't think anyone here is. Maybe we got our brother Julio. God bless you, brother, for what you do in the, gener- the lives and brother Jonathan as well. But every one of us has been given that responsibility to help someone to know Jesus and to have an authentic faith in him. That's called discipleship. All of us are called to it. Catherine, Dr. Catherine lived her life well. She went out well, folks. What are we going to do this coming Easter? I want us to have a time of response. I'm going to give an invitation here. Akeem, would you go ahead and start playing on the piano? Would we dim the lights in the black back, please? My role today is to get us ready for Easter Sunday to come. I want to start by talking to those of us who have had our hearts far from God and wayward. We've been thinking on the wrong things, trivial things, things that do not matter in eternity. Some of us have been worshiping and following after our own desires and idols, struggling with pet sins and habits. And we know that when Good Friday comes around that we're just, we're not quite ready for worship. Our hearts aren't quite there. In a moment, I want to invite you to come up, to come to the altar, to come to the steps, to lay your burdens down, to lay your life down once again before the Savior who laid his life down for you. I don't want you to go through the next six days, five days, and and have Good Friday come, and you've really been preoccupied with worthless things. I've had enough of that this last week. I don't know about you. What are the things that we need to repent of? What are the things that we're holding too tightly onto? What are the things that God would call us to let go of? I want to give a second invitation for those who have family members, a friend, an international student you know, you, for, for those of you who have someone in your life that you know God loves, that you ought to be praying for, and I want to invite you to come down to the front here and to lay it before God in boldness. Today, as we got ready to pray for church and our service, Sister Emily read through a passage in James, saying we need to be those, reminding we need to be those who are not double-minded, who pray with expectation that God will work And I want to challenge you. Are you willing to come down here and pour out and plead before God and ask the Lord earnestly for the salvation of a loved one? To pray earnestly with expectation for a student you've been wanting to see come to salvation. Let's not play it safe with Easter coming, folks. Come and plead on behalf of the lost with me. Won't you come down and lift them up? And finally... If you're here in the room and you're not sure, do I have an authentic relation with the Savior? Do I really know and have I really surrendered to Jesus Christ as the one who has come to pardon my sins? Do I really worship the King of Kings and surrender to him? I want to invite you to come down here and to pray.
So at this time, I want you to not be concerned about who's around you. Doesn't matter who else is going up. Even if you're the only one before the Lord, would you come and give yourself to him, whether in surrender of your personal life or in surrender in faith and prayer for the lost? Please come. Church, won't you come? Don't stay apathetic any longer. Don't wait to see if the Lord is up to something. Come and ask him to do mighty things and mighty works, to bring you back to the foot of the cross, to fill your heart with awe and wonder that he is a worthy God, to give you strength to forgive, to give you faith to believe. God, this year, this Sunday, this Easter, when your gospel message is preached, that heart can finally break down and trust in Jesus for the first time and call on his name and cry out, Hosanna. Church, won't you come? Won't you come? Give us about five so minutes here. Church, let's cry out to the Lord. Let's seek him. Let's have a season of revival and renewal. Let's not come out of this place the way we came in. Won't you come, church? Church.